Hello, students, doctors, and aspiring EM physicians. I'm your host, Yusuke Kishimoto, and welcome to the R Squared Road to Residency podcast. Today, we're joined by a familiar face. You've met him last episode, the one and only Parker Howard. Hello again, everyone. Thank you for having me. Today, I've heard we're going to switch gears a bit and talk about rank order lists, right? That's right, Parker. Last episode, we talked in-depthly about the interviews with Jasmine, but this time, we'll be covering the next step, the rank order list, also known as the ROL. We've got four main topics, education, location, wellness and culture, and visa sponsorships. But most importantly, what are your preferences in relation to everything we'll be covering today? Parker, you want to kick us off? Yeah, I think to start off, we'll talk a little bit about education. Uh, You know, this is the reason why you're going into the residency program. Again, all four of these things are something that you do want to consider, but education is the whole reason why you're going into residency. So let's start it off. I think uh, the culture of the program, you know, there's a separate section on culture, but education is part of the culture of the program as well. Um, And it affects the type of education you receive while you're in residency. So when you take all the educational aspect of this into account, it basically boils down to what kind of education do you want? There's a few different types that has to do with a few different hospitals that you would be uh, rotating at. Uh, Sometimes there's one hospital for the program, sometimes there's multiple, we'll get into that later. But there's three big types. One is community. Uh, A lot of community programs do take medical students. Uh, I went to a community program during my third year myself. I think they're a great place to learn. You get integrated with the community a little bit more. And we talked about this in the last episode, but if you're training in rural Oklahoma, for example, you know, or a a small community center that's near a big city, you're going to get a different experience than uh, going to a big inner city uh, urban area. This kind of leads into our second point, kind of depending on where you are and what your catchment area is for your hospital. That's where you uh, where you cover the hospital, you know, the EMS uh, uh, services that come to the hospital, what areas do they cover? There's a trauma classification for this. Uh, so one, it's how large of an area you're covering. And two, if you're a referral center. Now a referral can uh, refer to specialties that you might have within your hospital, but there's also a specific other trauma level. Uh, this is important because usually these big tertiary referral centers will also be trauma centers. The first one, and I'll go from uh, from most comprehensive to least comprehensive, is trauma level one. This is your large referral center. They provide comprehensive trauma care, and you can look online for this uh, if you really want. It's widely available on Google. However, trauma level one is, again, this large referral center. They do comprehensive trauma care, and what this means is they have uh, a trauma and surgical ICU. They obviously have trauma surgery, and then they also do rehab in their full spectrum. So their rehab uh, has multiple different facilities and specialties and uh, services that after a trauma happens, they get repaired. And then after they get fixed, there's the services there to help them on their rehab. And sometimes these patients can stay for you know upwards of a month or so uh, in these different rehab places. But the trauma one offers the entire coverage you know, from time of trauma until you're fully recovered. And then they also provide services afterwards to get physical therapy and other things you might need. Trauma level two is also a referral center. They are able to provide definitive trauma care, uh, but it lacks some of the post care that is given with the trauma level ones. So they might not have some of those uh, super intensive rehab facilities uh, and or staff that the level one trauma had. Then this goes to trauma level three. 
So as you notice, this keeps it goes down a little bit in what you can provide for the patients. So we'll do three and four trauma. Level three uh, provides definitive trauma care and 24-hour coverage. Uh, but unlike uh, level two, it's not a referral center. And they do lack some of the specialties that are in-house. There's It has to do with on-call stuff as well. That doesn't affect emergency medicine as much. In a trauma level two and one, though, you'll have more attendings and or residents on call or in the hospital than you will in trauma level three. And in trauma level four, this is a class that you take when you start your residency, but they can provide ATLS care, which is a standardized level of care that has to do with stabilization and packaging for transport of trauma patients. Long story short, trauma level one, highest level, most comprehensive level of care down to trauma level four, still can provide support. A lot of places in the country are trauma level four. So if this is where you're looking to practice after you get out of residency, it's good to have experience in these places. And a lot of programs will offer you time uh, at trauma level threes, fours, um, and some even non-trauma centers uh, at all. Um, and that's good because it really reflects the different practices that you will be in after you get out of residency. None is better than the other. Uh, it's again, all up to your personal preference, much as all this other stuff is that we'll be talking about today. So find what works for you and where your eventual practice environment might be, and you pick that. The next is going to be your patient population. So with education, with your patient population, you know, this, this kind of feeds into what do you want to focus on? Um, what type of patients are in your community? For example, uh, you know, if you're in Las Vegas, big tourist destination, you have a lot of travelers and international people. If you're in a place like San Diego and California, you'll get snowbirds, you get uh, travelers from elsewhere in the country and elsewhere in the world. And then you'll also, you know, you'll have uh, swaths of time where it's incredibly busy and then other swaths of time where you're just taking care of the community. So you kind of get this waxing and waning effect on your patient population. Miami, Florida, I spent a little bit of time there during fourth year medical school. Um, there's a strong uh, Latino Latinx influence. So uh, it has to do with the languages you'll be speaking, has to do with the uh, you know, demographics of your patients, where they're originally from, and it will end up affecting your practice. Uh, while we were there, uh, I had to talk a lot of Spanish to my patients. And if that's something that you want to do, you either want to learn a second language or, you know, something is your main language, then you can practice in an area where you can use those skills. The next thing that is uh, pretty important, and this is a subject of discussion many times that people have questions on, is a four-year versus a three-year program. And this is a much larger discussion, and I, I would definitely suggest that you look into this yourself and you look at four-year versus three-year programs, but I'll give you kind of our uh, experience with it and, and what we know about it because we also did this search uh, for four-year versus three-year programs as many other students will do uh, and make your rank order lists. Four years allows you to have more time to have more electives and to kind of work towards a subspecialty. There are a decent amount of fellowships after you leave uh, residency and these four-year programs can actually allow you to set yourself up well and differentiate yourself from others to either get that longitudinal experience during your fourth year or you can set yourself up in order to be better prepared to go into the fellowship of your dreams after residency. So there's other, you know, there's, there's a ton uh, and I'll get into that a little bit later. But doing the four-year helps you kind of build that base, and it gives you that extra year of learning, which is good, too. It helps you build leadership opportunities. You know, you get to run the department a little bit more, and you get to practice being an attending for an extra year with supervision before you go out into the world as an attending physician or as a fellow at a, a fellowship program that you will apply to. The three-year programs, uh, this is kind of what's been adopted more recently. 
This mainly offers faster completion uh, of your three years, you know, uh, rather than four years prior to fellowship or becoming an attending. Uh, many programs are now transitioning to three years, like I said, and who knows what this will hold, but it's up to your own personal preference. Uh, you'll readily be able to see on places like Ember Match and, uh, you know, when you apply and get your interviews, whether they're three or four years and you make your decision from there. Kind of going into what we were talking about with fellowships, uh, you can have fellowship considerations as well for where you want to go. Um, different places offer different fellowships readily available on their website, and you can look and kind of see. You can develop a rapport, much like you know when you do your your elective rotations, you know, and you want to do a sub I at a particular institution that you might eventually want to become a resident at. You can do your residency at a place you might want to become a fellow at. Uh, so after your residency program, you do have the option of specializing, like I said, in a specific area of interest. It's called a fellowship, and you'll be dedicating a year or two depending on the interest. The fellowships can be accredited by different accrediting bodies, such as the ACGME or ABEM. And you can find selections for these fellowships under EMRA and AAM RSA publications. Um, there is a, a site online, EMRA, that has it, and AAM also has a swath of materials for this as well under the medical students and uh, residents section. So uh, go and take a look at those. And again, it's up to your personal preference. You'll be hearing this a lot, uh, but we want to give you the info that you need in order to make these sort of decisions. It's also important with the three-year versus four-year programs, I did forget to mention this, you can commit to another year of academia and research, but you can take these different paths also through residency. So just because you're doing a three-year doesn't mean you don't do longitudinal experience, or just because you're doing a fourth year doesn't mean that you can just focus on being a great emergency medicine resident and uh, future attending. But for example, if you're interested in a wilderness medicine fellowship in the future, there's uh, different accrediting bodies for each fellowship. So you can kind of look at what they want you to know and you can either prepare that during your three or four year residency or like I said, during that fourth year, you can do electives uh, in these different things at different institutions uh, because you're encouraged to take electives during your third and fourth years. So for wilderness medicine, there's the fellowship in the Academy of Wilderness Medicine. And, uh, you know, when you do things during your residency, they'll award credits for different things towards a title. Um, again, this is not a board certification. But this is kind of a longitudinal experience that you get during your uh, three or four years of residency. Another one, um, use case actually very familiar with both of these, the American Registry for Diagnostic Medical Sonography offers credentialing towards a registered diagnostic medical sonographer. This is a title that uh, carries some weight. Um, when we were talking to some ultrasound uh, guys, they were saying that this is something that you can do to kind of establish yourself from other people, you know, before an ultrasound fellowship or just for your own general practice. So you can look these different things up that you're interested in, take your interests, see what kind of longitudinal experience or third or fourth year elective experience you want, and then you kind of make a decision based on that. We're going to switch gears a little bit and we'll talk about responsibility as a resident. Um, you'll hear this a lot in your interviews. There's a graduated responsibility versus uh, full immersion. Uh, there is some level of graduated responsibility for any residency because when you're on your first day, you're not expected to know absolutely everything. But programs will have a sort of standardized way that they do things and you can ask them about that. And they'll usually give you an answer of either you do graduated responsibility so the first years will take lesser intensity of patients or less uh, patient load in their, uh, in their first year or in their first set of time. And then you'll kind of work your way up 
as you get uh, to be a second, third, fourth year resident, uh, if you have a fourth year in the emergency department versus some places will put you in full immersion on day one, obviously with some help, you won't be alone, but you will be able to be fully immersed in patient care of very critical patients from day one. Again, just choose what you want for that. The other thing you can do, and I talked about this a little bit, uh, some programs will have you rotate at multiple different hospitals. Some will have you rotate at one. My program is, uh, is in-house mostly. There's a couple different places you can go uh, outside of the main hospital. Um, and then some have a swath of different clinical experiences. And if you're at mostly in-house, you know a lot of the staff, you know the location, you don't have to move around as much, but maybe you like having some variety in where you're going. And, and maybe you can go to a few different places, either around town or around the region, and you get to experience different uh, emergency departments or different specialty services, and you can see how they do things and allows you to be exposed to more. Yeah, usually a larger academic center will be in-house, uh, and then uh, smaller facilities will have you move around to different places, but you'll also move around at larger hospitals. So again, look at what the, uh, the residency program is offering during your interviews and when you make your notes and your lists, and then you can kind of go off of this as well as a consideration. Um, another big one is educational support. Uh, UCA will get a little bit more into wellness and culture later, but educational support goes along with education. There's graduate medical education at the hospital that will kind of go over uh, keeping you on track, uh, you know, doing didactics, doing different uh, academic opportunities. And this is important because these different offices allow you to transition easier into residency and also give you continuing medical education when you're in uh, your residency so that you stay current. The whole idea of residency is to turn you into a lifelong adult learner. And so educational support is very important because when you're establishing those good habits early on, it's good to have people that specialize in this. You know, residencies specialize in training and continuing to educate people throughout their time there. So it's good to make those good habits early and these places uh, help make that easier. And then for educational support as well, you know, I talked about future fellowships before, but uh, those facilities and uh, faculty and staff can help you uh, reach your own goals. So for example, uh, you know, I said use case kind of interest in ultrasound wilderness. Um, I'm interested in aerospace and flight medicine and the GME office, both the actual staff there, as well as, you know, the other faculty can kind of point you in the right direction and show you where you can go in order to get the most experience at those different things. The last thing I'll talk about with education and kind of the hospital itself is location. This kind of goes with education a little bit and with wellness and culture, but it is its own separate thing. And we thought it was appropriate to make this a separate thing for location. There's a lot of different things to consider. Some people have families, uh, spouse, significant other that they might want to stay close to, or they might uproot themselves. People do this in different ways. And there's, again, there's no right way. Um, I know some people that uprooted their whole family to go, you know, across the state, across the country. It's just something that you have to consider, you know, incur moving costs, incur the, uh, you know, the burden of trying to set up a new life. And some people love it and some people don't. Also for location, being close to particular towns or cities or how the weather is, um, you will be spending three to four years at this place. And so it's important to kind of consider what will the place be like outside of the hospital. We're not always there. You do get some days off, especially if you have a significant other, family, other residents, you're gonna to wanna to go out and do some stuff. So make sure that you like the location where it's at and you can see yourself living there for three to four years because if you don't like the place, you're not really gonna like 
your education as much and it won't allow you to focus on your academics as much. So make sure you like the location and especially the weather. Um, the other thing is the demographics of the patients in the area. Uh, you know, we talked about location a little bit with this and kind of what um, the hospital will be like, whether it's an urban, you know, or a community or an academic center or whatever. And um, the demographics of the patient population is also important. Uh, we talked a little bit about tourism versus, you know, people that live there versus, a, you know, a smaller community setting or a rural setting. But the actual demographics of the patients as well is, is a lot of young people, is a good mix of pathologies and ages. And again, depending on what you want, maybe you want um, a place that's more of a geriatric population. You know that the people that go there are generally a bit older and a bit more sicker, and that way you can get uh, you know, better at managing the care of the people that will be you know, your disease burden for the rest of your career, uh, or you want a little bit more variation, or again, whatever it is that you want, go for it. But uh, we're just trying to give you these situations so that you can make these decisions for yourself. And now I'll kick it off to Yusuke to talk about wellness and culture. So Yusuke, keep us going. Sounds good, man. Programs that were incorporating efforts to improve resident well-being was a huge plus in my eyes. You're about to experience the hardest time in your life where your actions are going to permanently affect someone's lives. It may seem obvious, but it didn't really sink in until my first shift. Unfortunately, you're not a medical student anymore where you present your patients, rattle off some differentials, and write a couple notes. You'll be writing orders, consulting other specialties, dispoing patients, tech communications and building trust within the department, checking up on the patient, family, and caretakers, giving bad news, juggling three to four patients on the board at a time, perform life-saving procedures, and it's all your responsibility. It's your job. With oversight, of course. But it can take a lot out of you. A lot of programs are starting to incorporate something called the Eight Dimensions of Wellness, created by Dr. Peggy Swarbick, who's well-known in the occupational therapy and wellness world, consisting of physical, social, emotional, intellectual, financial, vocational, environmental, and spiritual aspects. Some of these are pretty self-explanatory, but for example, financial would involve tips on saving money, holding business of medicine courses, environmental would involve how the world around you affects you, and ways that you can become involved to support local and international climates. Spiritual would involve something like exploring your values, expanding your worldviews, and influences it has on others. Vocational would involve hosting job fairs for career opportunities and exploring interests for future career paths. Additionally to that, what other support avenues do they offer? Do they host resident events like wellness retreats or weekly traditions? What's the resident's perceived happiness of the program? You'll be able to tell pretty quickly during your interviews by, let's say, the number of residents that come to the interview itself or the meet and greets. It shows how involved they want to be in the recruitment process. Their mood and attitudes during the events. Are they excited to talk with you and share their experiences? Are they leaning back in their chairs and seem pretty disinterested? Or are they coming on even for a few minutes to show their face during the shift to greet potential new interns? What about collegiate mentorship or collaboration? Teacher and student, equality versus equity, chances at collaborating with faculty for research, are they present at social events as well or teaching at sim labs? What are the faculty-resident-student ratios like? The most ideal would be a one-to-one-to-one -to -one -to -one ratio where a faculty is directly teaching a resident that's directly teaching a student. But if there's a program where there's too many students or too many residents under one attending, it can get a little hard for teaching opportunities if you catch my drift. There are so many world-renowned physicians who are active in academia, many that we look up to, 
but they're all across the country and you can only choose one program. If you want to learn from them or if there's a specific interest you want to pursue that's in their expertise, feel free to reach out. You might be able to get yourself a fourth year elective opportunity or be able to learn more about the program and how they support their academic efforts. It's always great to find out the academic interests and passions that the residents, faculty, and the program itself as a whole has to see if it's a place that you'll jive at. Remember to ask questions during your interviews and follow their social media. We've noticed this during our interview trail that some programs will only post to Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram for Zoom meetings, meet and greets, whether it's virtual or in person, Q&A sessions, and many other events. Keep in mind that some social media accounts are also tightly controlled for ACGME or institutional policies. Due to these policies and keeping the playing field fair for all applicants, some may not respond or deny your request for post-interview second looks or additional outside events. Another thing that I feel like is a big part of wellness and culture is your schedules on your ED shifts. Are they 10-hour shifts on weekdays with 12-hour weekends, or are they all 8-9 to hours but more shifts throughout the month? Do you have to do shifts in the OBS units, fast track, or triage? How's the resident coverage in the department? How are the handoffs and charting done? Does the shift include an hour overlap for proper handoff culture and finishing your notes? And what kind of software do they use, like Epic, Cerner, etc.? Next, I'll have Parker talk a little bit about moonlighting. So a separate part about sort of wellness and culture, uh, mainly culture, is moonlighting. Moonlighting is something that has been in emergency medicine for as long as I know uh, and has been in residency programs for as long as I know. Um, For emergency medicine, it's usually done during the second, third, or fourth year, depending on if you have uh, three or four years. Uh, But during your uh, last two senior years, you will get a chance to moonlight. And it might be the case. I'm not sure you would have to ask the program. You might be able to do it during second year in some of the four-year programs. Moonlighting, I was confused about this when I was first looking at residency programs and, and kind of what moonlighting is. Moonlighting is defined as any activity outside of your department and outside of the requirement of the residency fellowship in which you yourself perform duties as a fully licensed physician and you receive financial compensation for your services. So there's two components to this. One, you're operating outside of your department. There's a soft moonlighting, which I'll get into soon. And there's a hard moonlighting, uh, if we're kind of defining them, where you are operating completely independently with your own license, either contracted by your hospital in a different hospital within the system or in a completely different hospital system um, that you kind of arrange with your GME faculty and your attendings and uh, program directors where you're working basically as a contractor, as a resident and working as a full-fledged attending. So this sort of soft uh, moonlighting, it means you're in-house. So uh, for example, fellows do this a lot where they'll moonlight as an attending outside of their fellowship duties. We're not gonna get into that here. Uh, But for example, I can talk about my own experience. Uh, I have the opportunity to moonlight in the neuro ICU and for neurosurgery, I think overnights during my second year. So I I don't fully have my license yet to the best of my knowledge. However, I'm able to do some extra shifts and moonlight um, in a separate department from my own. Again, within the hospital. So, you know, I'm still covered by insurance and stuff, but hard moonlighting means completely outside. So you can work at an urgent care, you can work at another emergency department. Uh, Again, a lot of times this is set up by your program itself. 
you know, specific places that you can moonlight at. I know that some programs will actually encourage moonlighting, um, especially some of the four-year programs I looked at encourage moonlighting outside of the hospital. You know, historically, the residents have worked at a few places, but you're uh, encouraged to work outside of the hospital to kind of get up your skills as a independently practicing attending on your own. The one thing here is that it means that you're practicing under your own license when you're moonlighting outside of the hospital. Uh, so one, you have to get your license early. So sometimes you have to accelerate your process a little bit. And two, it means that you get experience prior to graduation. Like I said, sometimes good to show on a resume for a fellowship or for future employment. So uh, use case uh, program also has some moonlighting. They get to moonlight at urgent cares in underserved areas around the neighborhood and around the city. And there is good pay, but you are single coverage. And this is another consideration. You're the only doctor that's there. So you're operating independently. You, it's probably you and then, you know, a nurse and maybe a tech, if you're lucky, or two nurses. So this is nice because you get to practice independently, but you also have to consider, you know, is this a practice environment that you want? Um, and also, and this is a big one, uh, because this is something that you'll find out. You've probably noticed already. Residency is incredibly busy. And uh, a lot of times people think that they don't really have time to moonlight because they want to focus on their studies. And this is a very important thing that we wanted to stress to you guys. Do not let moonlighting mess up anything with your residency education. They'll tell you this. This is not something where it's like some unspoken rule. Moonlighting should not affect your education residency. You have to pass a certain level in your in-training exams. We won't go over those there. You just get tested every year to see how good you are at doing academic medicine, you know, and diagnosis and clinical medicine and management and treatment. But you have to get a certain percentage on those in-training exams. And then, you know, they're going to say, you still have to meet your hourly requirements each week. So you can't go over a certain amount. And if you start to fall behind at all, it's a privilege and they're not going to let you do that. They're not going to let you fall behind in residency just because you're moonlighting. So good to make some money, especially for those with loans you know, and, and other considerations, you know, maybe you want to work a little bit more because you want to move somewhere else after residency or you want to go on a vacation or something during your vacation time, but just keep your education first and they'll enforce this as well. So me telling you this is not going to be some um, revelation. They're going to tell you that you have to put residency first. Thanks, man. These three points, Education, location, and wellness and culture were the three cornerstones or non-negotiables for us when we were considering places for a rank list. For non-US IMGs, there's a fourth point that you have to consider, visa sponsorships. Though I'd like to create a separate episode going over the visas, I'll briefly glance over each of them. If you'd like to skip this section, please jump to around 29 minutes and 30 seconds. Here in the United States, we have mainly three different types of visas that you need to apply for before or early during the ERAS application process. We have the J-1, H-1B, and O-1A in order of common sponsorships, each having their own strengths as well as weaknesses. The J-1 is more of an exchange program where you can stay in the United States for around three to five years with the condition that you have to return to your home country for two years after your training to bring your knowledge you've obtained to promote quote-unquote interchange in education. Or you could waive that by serving those two years in underserved areas in the United States with healthcare shortages. This may sound like a deal breaker for a lot of people that just want to come here for residency. It is faster to file as well as more residencies and fellowships offering this visa option. The H-1B is more of a temporary work permit that allows three years 
plus an additional maximum of a three-year extension without the two-year requirement mentioned in J-1. It also has the flexibility to apply for a green card after working those years in the United States. However, this one is lengthier and harder to obtain due to a couple factors. Your employer has to file a labor conditions application, then petition on your behalf, and the rarity due to its 85,000 cap on the total number of H-1B visas issued each year. The O-1A is even harder to get, with an initial period of three years with an indefinite number of extensions, as long as you qualify as a renowned individual who has, quote, extraordinary abilities in the field of science, education, business, or athletics, which is a metric that can be measured by publications, citations, development of a new technique or drug, or other research opportunities, but the standard is set very, very high, where they must have attained national or international claim in their field. Since residencies where most begin their careers, only a select, rare few will fit this criteria, and most residencies don't even offer this option. For a general overview, you can take a look on Emmermatch or Frida to see if they offer visa sponsorships. Be mindful to look when that information was last updated, because it could be out of date. Make sure to also read up on the program's website, because some clearly state that they do not offer visa sponsorships. It could be on their homepage or their Q&A section. Their GME office might be able to help and guide you through the steps necessary to obtain each visa type. Now, what should you do with all this information that you've compiled? With everything considered, you should write out the programs you'd like to match at in order of preference most desired to least. Two pointers. Don't leave out programs you've interviewed with unless you really didn't feel like you liked that program and don't see yourself training there. Also, don't add programs you didn't receive an interview at since programs won't rank applicants they didn't interview. Programs will also be doing the same. They're going to be creating their rank list on their most preferred applicant and working their way down. You'll then input this list electronically through NRMP's R3, Registration, Ranking, and Results System. When submitting your list, make sure to click the Certify button. You can adjust your rank as many times as you'd like as long as it's before the deadline, but you would have to re-click the Certify button each time you make an edit. And that's it. Let the matching algorithm run its course and patiently wait out your results till the third week of March for Match Week. I do, however, want to stress one key point. Don't rank the program based on how you believe the program will rank you. Again. Don't rank the program based on how you believe the program will rank you. You were interviewed for a reason. They saw something in you on your applications and wanted to get to know you more. Don't be so critical on yourself and sell yourself short. This is your rank list. You should rank where you want to go. Rank where you believe you can receive the best training fit for your style, and most importantly, where you can see yourself happy. While Parker and I were brainstorming for this episode, we thought, hey, what about couples matching? And that's something I want to bring up in this episode as well, because it becomes very important on how they create their rank list. Creating your rank order list is difficult, especially with all the factors that we've talked about before. Couples matching adds in an additional factor where you'll need to compare and contrast with a significant other, domestic partner, or even friends. Yes, friends. Any two people can agree to couples match. First is communication. It's important to talk it out with each other very early regarding each of your pro-cons, opportunities and obstacles, benefits, drawbacks, and absolute must-haves. You'll have to be honest with each other in what each other wants in a program, then see what overlaps, 
kind of like a Venn diagram, and compromise in each other's areas. You're also going to want to apply broadly. You'll never know where either will receive an interview from, and it's important to look at the programs in similar geographic locations. In case you don't match at the same program, but you could be in close proximity to each other, especially if you have a family. If you've received an interview from an institution but your partner has not, and vice versa, make sure to reach out and advocate for each other. Contact the program coordinator. Let them know that A, you're participating in the couples match, B, your partner's information, so name, AAMC ID, specialty they're applying to, and C, how they haven't heard back yet, but do so respectfully. Also, technically, you don't have to decide to couples match till the rank order list, but you can state on your ERAS application when you complete it. There's a few key differences between the normal rank order list versus a couples match rank orders list. You'll first have to apply to programs in pairs. You can each list the same program multiple times in different combinations, and the same number of ranks must be on each other's rank order list. So if one partner does 150, the other has to do 150. There's also a, quote, no match code that one partner can designate that states that one partner is willing to go unmatched if the other is matched to a position and vice versa. This opens up the avenue for unmatched applicants to SOAP. For guidance, the unmatched applicant can contact the NRMP on Monday morning of match week to find out the location where their partner's matched. A big caveat is that a match is confirmed only when both partners match as a pair on their list where each partner has been offered a position. For example, the best way to go about it is folding a piece of paper vertically in half. Each partner will then write in different colors on each side of their list of individual preferred order, working from number one all the way down to the bottom. Then you'll coordinate with your partner on how to prepare your pairs. When coordinating, it'll look something like this. So partner A, let's say, will have California Program 1, California Program 1, California Program 1 as their top three choices. Partner B will then choose California Program 1, California Program 2, and California Program 3 as their top three choices. Like I mentioned before, you can list the same program multiple times as long as they're in different combination. And in this situation, partner A decided that they really wanted to go to program number one. For partner B, they said, sure, I also want to go to California program one as the same program that we'll match at. But in the case that they don't match there, they chose program two and program three also in California so that they'll at least be in close proximity of each other. Verbally, this is a tough concept to explain, but if you search for NRMP couples in the match, there's a page that has a great video explaining the whole process. Numbers-wise, last year's cycle had about 1,239 couples, and they had a 93% match rate, where 88% both matched, and 5% only one matched. Unfortunately, the NRMP 2023 data tables didn't show if they matched into the same program. And that concludes this episode. It's daunting to think about where you'll be spending the next three to four years on your residency journey. Our rank order list information and advice were just our preferences and may significantly differ between person to person and in what they determine is the most important factor when considering a program. Parker, do you have any last comments? Thank you for having me, Yusuke, and everyone else. Uh, As always, it's great to be on this podcast. It's great to be able to talk to you guys. And I hope that you guys are able to make your rank order list and hopefully this makes it a little bit easier. I know it's a lot to cover, but we just want to give you guys some information and a little tidbits of kind of how we came to these conclusions so you can make a better decision for yourselves in the future. If you found this podcast helpful, please mention it to a fellow colleague. 
we would greatly appreciate your support. Catch you awesome people next time on the R Squared Road to Residency Podcast.